Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and I feel like I wasn't made for these times. Hi, I'm Daniel Dresner, and all my jackets are gray, all my ties are blue. Welcome to Space the Nation, where we look at science fiction through the lens of practice theory and preterism. Today we'll be talking about The Last Policeman. In the next few weeks, we'll be talking about, oh, Dan, you know what I forget? What are we going to be talking about in the next few weeks? The Expanse! The Expanse! The Expanse! The Expanse! Oh my god! The Expanse! Waving arms, uh, throwing confetti, all of the things, dancing, Snoopy dance. Yay! Yay! As perhaps you know, if you're a longtime listener, we started out as an Expanse Recap Podcast. We're returning to our roots (laughs) as an Expanse Recap Podcast. Uh, Exactly. We're actually not taking suggestions for a while, Dan. Like, (laughs) people cannot suggest to us things that they want us to recover, at least not for a couple of months. To be more accurate, you can entirely suggest things. We're just not going to listen to you. Yes, that is is correct. (laughs) The Expanse has priority. So we will not be taking or acting on suggestions until 2022. But if you are interested in supporting the show or just, you know, telling us how you feel about stuff, you should go visit the Patreon page we have, which is patreon.com slash space the nation. Dan, will you tell our listeners more about our Patreon page? I would be happy to. So there are many benefits to the Patreon page, the most obvious of which is that you can become a patron. And if you choose to become a patron, oh, the doors that open for you. You get (laughs) access to swag. You get early access to the podcast. You get access to our Discord channel. And the Discord channel is its own little community that has lots of lively interactions, including the occasional, you know, knock on me, which is fine. I'm fine with this. But also cooking and discussion of day jobs and music recommendations and pictures of people's pets. Which is always good. Uh, And even more fun than slagging Dan. (laughs) Which is awful light of fun. Uh, You also get access to our monthly AMAs. And finally, once we reach 250 patrons, we are more than halfway there, we will do another special patrons-only episode on a topic chosen by, in fact, the patrons. Also, a great way to support the show that costs you nothing except maybe... Zero. Well, maybe some social capital, I guess. Like a little piece of your heart. Mm -hmm. You could tell your friends and neighbors. You could rate and review us. You could also just send us a note, you know, like just telling us how you feel, that we made a little bit of a difference in your life. We like those letters, actually. Yeah, Yeah, we 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 love that stuff. And we are on Twitter if you want to reach out to us that way. I am at Anna Marie Cox. He is at Dan Dresner. Dan, today we're going to be talking about The Last Policeman. Please... Tell me why we're talking about The Last Policeman. I'm on a quest, and that quest (laughs) is to find every single example of sci-fi noir I can locate because this is your favorite genre. And, you know, I like making you smile. I'm not going to lie. And so this is not exactly sci-fi noir. I mean, this is an interesting debate to have. It is definitely apocalypse noir. (laughs) There is is a detective, there's a murder to be solved, and there is some strange astronomical stuff going on. Yes, yes. But at minimum, it is noir adjacent. I knew about this novel. Uh, Ben Winters is, you know, well-respected, I think. Kind Mm -hmm. of as a quasi-genre writer, you know. Mm -hmm. I believe that Underground Airlines got a lot of credit and good reviews in what I would call like the straight media, you know, like mainstream media. Yes, he broke through to the pop charts, as it were. Yes, exactly. And so I knew that this existed. I confess that I found... The idea of it so depressing, I avoided it for a while. (laughs) Like, because the idea of it is like, well, yeah, fuck, why would you investigate a murder? You know, or Mm. that's how I thought about it. At your first cut on this, but then you read the book. But then I read the book because you suggested it. 
And I guess I'm in a slightly better place than I was whenever I was thinking about reading it before. And I found this novel weirdly hopeful. Hmm. I mean... Interesting, yeah. It is... In some ways, it's the darkest noir you can imagine, right? Right. It's literally (laughs) about the end of the world, yeah. Yeah. But in... There's a few ways in which it shows a kind of tenderness and humanity... Mm-hmm. that I, I do think the best noir can showcase. Yes. And indeed, I don't think noir doesn't work if it's entirely cynical. It can't yeah. work if it's entirely cynical. Yeah. There has to be some degree of idealism or hope embedded mm-hmm. in there. That even if you have a jaundiced eye, you have to still believe that there is something that is right to do. Yeah. I've always argued you can't be a cynic without hope. I mean, if you're purely cynical, that means you think things can't be better than they are. Right. right. You're only a cynic if you have an idea of like what could be better. So, mm-hmm. Anna, so let's get to the story behind the story. So this is a novel about a detective in Concord, New Hampshire named Henry Pallas, who is trying to solve a murder. And oh, by the way, the world is going to end. There is a comet that is going to strike the earth that is a 100% likelihood chance of hitting the earth that will be an extinction level event. Anna, what was Ben Winters thinking when he decided to write this? Ben Winters wanted to write a detective novel. He was interested in the genre, but he felt like, and this is a quote from an interview he did, the great books of that genre have some levels to them, some resonance beyond X to Y to Z of clue tracking. And of course, that is entirely correct. I wanted to give my hero the challenge of solving his case in the midst of some earth-shaking calamity. And from there, it was a short trip to the end of the world. Literally an earth-shaking calamity, I guess. Yeah. Yes. What the novel winds up being about, and, you know, he talks about this, is the question of why people do what they do, even though in the end nothing matters. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, why do you continue to find meaning if everything's going to turn to dust? Uh, Not just eventually, Dan, but in nine months, six months, you know, we have a countdown. yes. Yeah. He got really interested in portraying this particular end of the world realistically. And not only did he consult with astronomers, uh, including asteroid expert, asteroid expert, I love that. I mean, wonder if he puts <laughs> that on his income tax. <laughs> Timothy Spar, who's the director of the Minor Planet Center, which is another great thing to put on your income tax oh, returns. Man. I want to be, be a non-resident senior fellow at the Minor Planet Center. That is, that is an awesome sounding name. Uh, the Minor Planet Center. It does sound like a sci-fi title, doesn't it? Director of yeah. the Minor Planet Calendar. <laughs> director of the Minor Planet Center. That actually sounds like a Douglas Adams thing. Yes, right? it does. It does yeah. actually, yes. At Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. Uh, Winters apparently called him and said, this is what I want to portray. And Mm -hmm. uh, Spar said, oh, sure, I can get you your asteroid. Now, (laughs) it is important to note that this is actually not the scenario that most astronomers believe to be what might happen. What they believe to be more likely is in terms of catastrophe (laughs) Mm -hmm. is that we get a smaller one, right? Yes. And this completely like i can't remember how big it is but whatever it's, it's big enough. uh maya so the name is in the the novels i think maya i believe it's like six to eight miles long yeah it, it much more likely yeah. we get something smaller it would still be terrible <laughs> you, st- you right. still in might fact, see the end of the world <laughs> as we are recording this the day we are recording this nasa actually is planning on launching a a sort of golf cart sized probe to try to deflect an asteroid it's basically a test to see 
to what extent can, can they actually deflect an asteroid particularly far out? And yes, and as NPR reported, basically this sort of Asteroids that actually really could destroy the world, they think they've pretty much got the, a grip on and they, they know where they are and they're not going to hit us. It's the ones that are smaller that could, let's say, wipe out a city that they're not entirely aware of and, of course, want to know more about. Yes. I found it interesting he was originally going to set the story in Brooklyn, which is, I believe, where he lives, or at least he knows, maybe he used to live there. Because I, I believe now he lives in Cambridge, which is one reason why he was so cozy with the director of the Minor Planet Center. Right. And there are some scenes that take place in Cambridge in the novel. That's right. I agree with him that setting it in in a more less urban area mm-hmm. makes it feels more real somehow. I don't know why, but no, you you don't see a lot of detective novels set in Concord, New Hampshire. So that right. I, if it, it, I think it was pointed out that like it's it's a sort of mid-sized town that like you know it's small enough that it does feel like a small town but it still is large enough that it has an urban feel to it it feels more kind of work a day to set it in concord you know Uh, his dreamcast uh pulls from the wire which i mean why not he thinks jim true frost should play palace that's prez i don't remember him he's the totally geeky tall guy in the wire and then wendell pierce as culverson (laughs) which i think is pretty amazing and rose byrne as nico so, uh, <laughs> and Tom Waits as the chief of police, mm-hmm. but okay. he said only because I'd like to meet him. <laughs> so if you are intrigued by this plot, um, uh, dear listeners, we should probably get to it. Dan, take us through act one. Let's go to act one. Nevertheless, he persisted. Meet Henry Palace, a new detective in the Concord, New Hampshire Police Department. He's investigating an apparent suicide in a McDonald's bathroom by one Peter Anthony Zell, which is pretty common in Concord, given how the world's going to end in six months because a comet named Maya will strike the Earth. The knowledge of impending doom has led to something less than complete anarchy and more than minor (laughs) delays in the global supply chain. Due to a new federal law, cops can now arrest people without worrying about habeas corpus and other constitutional niceties, which has managed to maintain some degree of order. Everyone chalks up Zell's death to suicide due to the impending doom. Palace doesn't think the details adds up and investigates it as a murder. He learns that Zell was an actuary who worked at Merrimack Insurance (laughs) uh, and had bouts of erratic behavior in the prior year. Just just a quick shout out to the actuaries. (laughs) (laughs) Anna, is there any reason you particularly like actuaries? Where are my actuaries at? There we go. Yes. (laughs) Hi, Dan. (laughs) (laughs) Zell had bouts of erratic behavior in the prior year as the odds of Maya hitting started climbing. His secretary, Naomi Edis, lies to Palace about how well she knows Zell. Palace learns that the night of his death, he left work with a man in a biodiesel operated pickup truck because actual oil is no longer available. At Zell's apartment, Palace finds a lot of clippings about Maya and an unfinished note to his sister Sophia. At Sophia's house, her husband Eric tells Palace that Zell was lately very depressed but lies about his wife's whereabouts. The forensic pathologist refuses to do more than the absolute minimum when autopsying Zell's body because Palace's theory that someone strangled Zell doesn't seem to jive with the physical evidence. Palace takes a vial of Zell's blood to the toxicology lab anyway. Meanwhile, Palace must also deal with his sister Nico, who asks him to try to find her missing husband and lay about Derek. 
Anna, one of the more affecting scenes in this book, I thought, was the description of how the world learns about the end, which is, of course, as we probably will, via Scott Pelley of CBS. So apparently CBS makes this bid to live broadcast the end of the world. There is some uncertainty about what is going to happen because the comet apparently goes around the sun. The chief NASA astronomer runs the numbers and then literally breaks down on public television feeling so sad. I'm not so sure I thought that was believable. Did yeah, you? yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel like it was an idea that Winters had in his head that he, he enjoyed sketching out, you know? <laughs> yes, yes. Like thinking of this announcement as like, I don't know, um, the Oscars nominations or something. Right. But one supposes that the scientific community is <laughs> public-minded enough that it wouldn't... <laughs> be bid upon you know <laughs> like <laughs> yeah i'm thinking that's not really something where like nasa's like oh thank god finally we can make some money if the world ends you know like that's yeah, yeah. also that's, let's be honest that's the problem I mean, there winters wrote this novel in 2012 and social media now is a little bit larger than it was then but it wasn't nothing then it was still pretty big i guarantee you someone was going to leak something well before the actual announcement um, and, and not just leak it, it but again like you know nasa is a public <laughs> You know, yeah, agency. Public agency. Yes. Yes. So I, no, I this is. They would let us know. <laughs> I will say that the Martian is more accurate here because, among other things, they point out that since NASA is a public agency, anything that they do has to go public within 24 hours, and so therefore they've got to let everyone know that the astronaut is still alive on Mars, which is not something I thought I would say during this podcast. And while this novel is uh, hopefully not too prescient and does take place in a time before social media is quite what it is today, and, and I mean, it would be interesting to see how Winters would write this novel if social media was quite, you know, as had infiltrated our lives to the extent that it has right. now. Or in some ways, the, the polarization also that, that oh, exists now. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to talk about that, too. Yeah. Um, but I think he did kind of invent doom scrolling, you know, <laughs> uh, or the concept of doom scrolling, right? <laughs> That's an interesting point. I hadn't thought about that. That is fair. Congratulations to Ben Winters for you know, basically innovating in the idea of doom scrolling. All right, All act right. two, Dan. Let's get to act two. That's quite the risk assessment you have there. Palace learns that his bro-in-law, Derek, was arrested for trespassing on a military base with his ATV. Derek is now, as he puts it, a guest of the military industrial complex and is uncooperative in his conversation with Henry. Palace also finds the pickup truck driver, a, a dude named J.T. Toussaint, who claims that Zell left his house the evening of his death after the two saw a movie and drank some beers. As it turns out, that story checks out. A beat cop does some detecting and retrieves Zell's cell phone, uh, which wasn't on his body at the time of death. Palace sees that Zell has been calling Naomi Edis every night. Palace confronts her and she acknowledges that Zell was the morphine addict and needed her help getting clean. Palace deduces that Zell was doing a risk assessment of Maya and tried morphine when he thought the probability of it hitting the earth was sufficiently high. Palace tries to find Zell's supplier. He interrogates Toussaint, who was the son of a notorious drug dealer. Toussaint also admits to helping Zell use drugs, but not to supplying them. Palace threatens him with arrest, which amounts to a life sentence, what with Maya bearing down and all. Toussaint lashes out, injuring Palace's eye, but is killed by one of the other detectives interrogating him. Palace, realizing that midwives can also write prescriptions, confronts Zell's sister, Sophia. She confesses that Zell absconded with her prescription pad and hadn't told Palace about it because her husband had wanted it kept quiet. 
Anna, I like the idea that even short-term jail sentences amounted to a life <laughs> sentence in this universe because of the upcoming apocalypse, um, because it was one of those sort of details that was simultaneously realistic, but nonetheless surprising. What was your favorite twist on the end of the world as Winters depicted it? Well, I want to talk about this in really fine detail after we finish uh, the whole summation of the novel, but I did like the idea that people do the bucket list, that there's a fair amount of people that are just like, fuck yeah. it. You know, mm-hmm. um, I mean, it's an interesting discussion to have about what proportion of society that would be. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and also depending on the society for that matter, or depending on where in the United States, I think also. Yeah. I also really found echoes of the pandemic in reading mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, we're not as far as we know, facing an extinction level event with the pandemic, but it is one of the most serious um, international. Anna, that's just because the nanobots in our vaccines haven't been activated (laughs) That's right. I I found some forks sticking to me earlier today. I wonder what that's about. (laughs) (laughs) But it is, I think, it is the largest scale catastrophe yeah. That has happened to humans in a long time. I would say the way I would put it is the pandemic is the event that has caused the greatest change in everyone's daily life yeah. since I think World War II. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That's a very measured way to put it. But I but yeah. but what I, I think the emotional ramifications of that, again, we're not facing an apocalypse, but I think it it's turned a lot of people inward and we're looking at mass resignations. Right. Yes. The great resignation. Yeah. And that's a good point. I wonder (laughs) if maybe that tells us more people would go bucket list Mm -hmm. um, than Winters believes. I mean, yeah, I also think he says he consulted with economists on this. I wonder if economists would say something different now, given the information we have. Yeah, that's people react to the pandemic. Well, we'll talk a little more about this when, when we read more of the plot, because I also think there's some there's something that Winters overlooks a little bit on this. But let's get to uh, Act Three, The Long Kiss Goodnight. Alice reaches out to old high school flame Allison Keckner, a muckety-muck at the Justice Department. Allison says that Derek <laughs> believes in a conspiracy theory that claims the government has watched Deep Impact a whole heck of a lot and therefore has moon bases to protect elites from Maya. So he's being held as a terrorist. Later, Palace tries to visit Derek again, but now the military base denies that Derek was ever there or indeed that Derek ever exists. Soon after, Nico calls her brother and says he's going on a trip and we'll be back and see him again. (laughs) It's a very strange little scene. (laughs) It is a strange little scene. (laughs) Naomi calls Palace to suggest that Zell, newly tasked with investigating life insurance claims, maybe made an enemy by finding a false claim of someone trying to essentially live their final days in style by cashing out on a policy. That certainly would have been a motive for murder as the claimant presumably would have been arrested and therefore would have had to spend their entire life in prison once Maya hits. Palace and Eddie's go on a date and, hey, spend the night together because this is a sci-fi noir novel um, (laughs) together at his apartment. Naomi is acting like she's nearing the end, my friend. The talk screen on Zell's blood comes back and the coroner reports, A, he'd been drugged with GHB, B, he had had no morphine in his system for at least three months, and C, he was knocked unconscious before being hanged. That same morning, Palace is informed that Naomi has been shot dead in her office. Anna, one of the unspoken mysteries in this book is about the people who do the opposite of a bucket list. They keep working. And indeed, 
my favorite character in this novel is the forensic pathologist. Oh, I love uh, her so much. Fenton. I was about to say that. She, yeah. Yeah. No, she's she's easily my my dream character. You know, but there are others who sort of keep working, like Zell's boss, who's not really into it and is in fact an alcoholic at this point, clearly. But nonetheless, Fenton is very serious. Palace is very serious. One of the beat cops is extremely serious. You could argue they have different reasons, but certainly the ripcord to bail is available to everyone. So, Anna, which kind of person are you? Are you bucket list or lunch bucket? <laughs> you know, I think as much as I think, you know, work is oppressive and, you know, that leisure is a revolutionary activity. <laughs> that is not true for all of us, right? Mm -hmm. The way that I thought about it when I was reading the novel was less about would I work and more about would I create art? Mm -hmm. Or would I do what I do? Because I am incredibly fortunate, right? Um, most of what I do for a living is stuff that I love. Yeah. You know, like there's parts of it I don't like, of course, but like I would keep doing a podcast like to the Aww. extent, you know, like to the extent Aww. one could, right? right I yes, mean, yes. eventually maybe not because I, I started to sort of question how, how well I know myself about this mm -hmm. and Dana, just a little window into my life mm -hmm. almost every morning. When I make my bed, I make my bed like luxury hotel style. Oh. There's, you know, a couple of comforters and mm -hmm. mini throw pillows, and they're all arranged just so. Mm -hmm. And Dan, it's been That's a long fine. time since another person saw my bedroom. Like, <laughs> I, I do that for me, you know? Yeah. And that, how does that relate to work, you ask? I, I'm curious. There's a line that Pallas has. It's actually mm -hmm. about Fenton, um, the yeah. pathologist. He says, the perseverance in this world, despite it all, of things done right. Mm -hmm. And it just gives me so much pleasure to have things just so, right? Mm -hmm. To create things that give me joy. And so I think I would just continue to create things that give me joy. And... While to a certain extent, I am one of those people that could probably write a novel and never publish it, and I'd just be real happy that it, it was good. It exists. It exists. Yes. Mm -hmm. there, I would, you know, I would want to put it out in the world, too, you know. Oh. The other thing I'll, I'll say, and I, I did think of you, Dan, mm -hmm. is when uh, Pallas asked Fenton why she hasn't gone bucket list and gone off and do whatever mm -hmm. it is you've always wanted to do, and she replies... This is what I've always wanted to do. Yeah. And, and as an academic, I identify with that. Like, yeah. I, there, are, there are so <laughs> many aspects of my job that I don't think of as a job. I, mm -hmm. I like doing them. And even if it's occasionally drudgery, I, I literally enjoy doing it. I agree with you. That this is the thing that I think Winters does the best in terms of the writing, which is he he persuasively, and it, it has to work for this novel to work. You have to believe that Palace wants to be a detective, that Fenton wants to be a forensic pathologist, that even as the world is crumbling all around them, they just want to do their job. Um, and weirdly, I would not have expected to make this comparison, and you, you might not like this. There is an element akin to Atlas Shrugged here of like the people who just want to do stuff even while others around them you know, are falling apart. 
I don't think it really flies that much, but but let me put it this way. It does share with that novel an admiration for competency that is unusual. That that's not something that's often valorized, I guess, in in sci-fi all that much. I would say just to turn mm-hmm. it a little bit away from Ayn Rand. Although I, I think, know, yeah, fair. I enough. think what you've captured though um, in, in mentioning her stuff is that is that thing that a lot of teens resonate yeah. with, which is which is the idea of doing stuff because it's the right thing to do, man. You know, right. and I would say, but also doing it well and doing it well. But I would say That's that this thing. is an ode to craft. Yes. No, no, no. I completely agree. This is definitely not an ode to profit. This is an ode to doing work, not because you get paid for it. This is an ode, and that's fair. And that's where it's different from Rand. This is an ode to doing work because you actually love the work. And that's what I mean about that that line about the perseverance of, of doing things right. Yeah. And I don't know about you, Dan, but I do get visceral pleasure. Hmm. from like when things turn out the way that I want them to when I've done when I've worked hard on something and it just so, clicks just right like so I get like, yeah you, like do you, yeah. have you ever when you come up with like the perfect turn of phrase right no no, no. I mean, I'm sure you have this experience too which is you have in your brain something that you know how you want to say it and every once in a while every once in a blue moon it actually perfectly comes out on the page the way you had intended it. And the weird thing about writing is, is that that is a much rarer occurrence, I think, <laughs> uh, than most people realize. Um, and it often takes like multiple passes at something before it finally resembles what you want it to be. But every once in a while, you perfectly nail it. And yes, those are the moments in which like, I don't smoke, but I want to smoke a cigarette. And you know? I will I will go somewhere with that that I know we're going to talk more about later, but that's, that's a little bit like addiction. <laughs> Yes. And that you're you're always chasing that original high, or you always you're always right. chasing the high that doesn't come every time. I mean, yeah, there's obvious difference. Although I think in brain chemistry, like the it's the dopamine it might trigger hit. the same. It's a, it's yeah. a dopamine hit, yeah. and yeah. and I feel like yes, you can get that dopamine hit. You know, um, Fenton gets it from doing her job well. Like you can get it from mm-hmm. just doing your job well. McConnell, I believe, is the beat cop that he. She's the beat cop who like and she he seems mentors to have that. Yeah that yes. going on for her she's the uh, one who tracks say, down the cell phone yeah. i would say the waitress in the diner that they yeah. go to who doesn't get a lot of screen time but has really good lines when she is yeah. in the pages she seems like she's someone right. who who actually that sounds funny but yeah she's like really good at being a waitress she takes some pleasure in it you know right she's good at her job and that's that's not a minor thing and i think so I just I, want, and I, I feel that, that that rand really valorizes like excellent right yeah and this isn't about excellence no that's a fair point yeah this is about doing things right yes in that let me put it this way it can be the same outcome but it's just it's the same outcome for different reasons and so they're they're i'm perfectly willing to acknowledge the difference but but i i'm not insane to think that there is a parallel to be made oh no 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 i mean Uh, i see what you're i totally see what you're saying yeah i also want to compliment winters here something that you said but i'll just want to double down on the believability of palace and his um, motivations, which I think is the single toughest thing to pull off in this Mm -hmm. novel is to believe that this guy would keep going. Right. Uh, And no, this was the, there were times when I was reading this novel, particularly after the first section where I was like, dude, just give up. What are you doing? Like, even I was like, I I, obviously I knew he was going to be onto something, but there was like, I'm trying to think, would this person, you know, have actually persevered? I think one of the ways that Winters does a really good job with this is that this is, and one way this is different from a typical sort of noir is that Palace is too green 
to be mm-hmm. cynical. You know, in, in the novel, he is a beat cop for, I think, like a year and then gets promoted to detective because of the great resignation due to Maya. <laughs> and so he is in many ways, like, a, a trying to learn about being a detective. And I think one of the nicer sort of grace moments actually in the novel is when I think it's Culberson, who's one of the sort of senior mentors, one of the few, you know, veteran cops who stays at Concord, sort of looks at him and says, you would have been a great detective. It's a nice moment. And you realize that he simultaneously needs to solve this case, but doesn't quite know exactly what he's doing sometimes. And so as a result, makes the necessary mistakes for this to actually work as a plot. And I like also there there is ambiguity about whether or not he's right that this is a murder. Like, yeah. And I think it would might have been easier to write a novel in which, yeah, obviously it's a murder, you know, mm-hmm, and right, maybe yeah. other people think it's not. But we know we're on his side. We right. know that we know it's definitely a murder. And mm-hmm. the reader, at least, I think, is given sort of like, yeah, he might he might be doing some wishful thinking here. Right. Like, no, Winters <laughs> does a great job. I mean, you you kind of know there's going to be more to the plot, but right. Winters does a good job of making you think really, is this actually a murder? Like, you know, like it, it, that was extremely well done. But to answer the question you originally asked me, I think I would be lunch bucket, but I, I honestly am not sure. This is one of these things where I think there are some aspects of my job that I would probably discard in a heartbeat. Of course, I don't think committee meetings would be going on anyway. (laughs) So, you know, that would be gone. Would I still write? Yeah, I would still write. Would you still teach? If people wanted to learn, would you still teach? I have to admit, I think I probably would just because the fact that there were people who wanted to learn would move me. Yeah, same. It, that, that would actually like I, that would actually be touching. And I, I would like to think that I would want to do that. We obviously don't really know until you yeah. know, the apocalypse, yeah. but it's an interesting question. Yeah. All right. Let's proceed with the last act. We are in the end game now. Uh, Palace has a toxicology screen run on Naomi's blood. And hey, guess what shows up? Morphine sulfate. Naomi turns out to have been an addict herself, which is why Zell came to her for help with his own withdrawal. Palace figures that she started using after Maya's impact was official and got her drugs from Toussaint, having learned about him from Zell. Zell and Edis were both killed by Toussaint's supplier, who is, wait for it, Zell's brother-in-law, Eric Littlejohn. He had apparently been stealing the pain meds from the hospital where he works. After a very showy confrontation involving Fenton and McDonald, Palace arrests Littlejohn and takes him to the station house. Once there, however, the detectives are told that the department has been federalized and is being shut down. Wait, there's an epilogue, though. <laughs> Palace learns, <laughs> among other things, that Maya is now destined to hit Indonesia, so there's slightly less tension in the opposite side of the world, which is New England. Palace ties up one loose end from the case and returns home, where he finds his sister, Nico, waiting. She confesses that she used both Palace and Derek to help a group that she was part of determine whether the military facility her husband was held in was, in fact, the one where they believe the government is working on its plans for a <laughs> lunar habitat. And then leaves. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so, Anna, this is also a novel about addiction. And I was wondering what you thought about those portions of the book. Well, you know, addiction is a way of coping with the end of the world. It is also, <laughs> on another level, the, I, en- the end of the world. What? I'm sorry for laughing. No, it's yeah. okay. That's, yeah. that's, it's funny. Like, yeah. it is funny. And Dan, you know what? We laugh a lot in AA meetings. Yeah, people are often surprised um, how much jocularity there is at an AA meeting. And sometimes <laughs> I'm surprised when I tell my story at stuff that usually gets a laugh in an AA meeting. 
and people, normal people, don't see the humor at all. Um, <laughs> <laughs> content warning for suicide. Like, this is an absolute truth. When I woke up in, you know, ICU after I tried to commit suicide, my first thought was, oh, fuck. Like, <laughs> it's sort of funny, right? Like, it didn't work. Fuck. Yeah. You know? Like, I tried, and in an AM meeting, that gets guaranteed laughs. Normal people do find that a little less amusing. <laughs> that's the maturity you go to if you're not getting laughs after, like, you know, the first sharing of the story. Yeah. Like that, that's, your, that's, that's your ace in the hole. It's like, oh, they're not laughing. All right, I'm going to go with the suicide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And another little tidbit about AA meetings. Um, the discussion, would you use if you knew it was the end of the world, is something mm -hmm. that I have discussed at a meeting and discussed to really unrealistic ends uh, at rehab. Because there's not much to talk about at rehab. You really, you really have a lot of time on your hands. And also at rehab, there is this official, so when you learn about the disease of addiction and like how the forms that relapse takes, one of the things counselors will ask you is what your reservations are. And <laughs> what they mean by that is like your reservations about getting sober. And it also... What you have to do or what they're, they're, they want you to do with that is make a list of the circumstances under which you might drink again. Hmm. If A very common one is if a son or daughter dies, right? I can't imagine staying sober if right. one of my children dies, right? Huh. I can't imagine staying sober. But some, it can be positive too. I have a young woman. I can't imagine staying sober at my wedding. You know, I can't imagine that is a time I know I want to drink, right? Right. And... So when we sit around, some people will inevitably, thinking they're clever, <laughs> be like, well, if I knew it was the end of the world, you know, then I would drink or use or whatever. Mm -hmm. I have given this more thought than I'm sure, uh, obviously more than uh, any normal person has, but maybe even more than a typical alcoholic because I love apocalyptic fiction so much. Mm -hmm. Right. I remember re every book that I read after I got sober that had to do with the end of the world. I kept thinking, would AA still exist? And that maybe that's sort of funny. And we, no, and we, we talked, talked about, about this before. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Would AA still exist after the end of the world? But to the to the question of whether or not, like, I personally would stay sober if I knew the end of the world was coming, I think that I would. And of course, we can never know. It's sort of like the bucket list right. question. Yeah. Um, and we only have today. And circumstances always change. And I could drink over something. It's possible in the future. I could drink over something that only felt like the end of the world, right? But one of the reasons I, I think that I wouldn't, and I know I won't, don't want to, maybe that's mm. the clearer thing to say, Yeah. is that... Um, you know... If you're going through something that's hard for you, that can feel like the end of the world at any time, right? True enough. Uh, losing someone, um, ending a relationship. You might say that, well, the world ending, like, of course, like, that's different. That's so much bigger. Like, that, that would increase the chances you'd want to drink. And maybe... But I know from getting through the littler things or the things that felt big to me mm -hmm. and I stayed sober through them, the benefit of that was that I never lost my connection with my family or my friends. Mm -hmm. 
going through it at the same time. It autom- Much like the pandemic, it creates a shared experience. But what you're talking about in terms of addiction is something where, no, unfortunately, it's it, it can be very isolating. I yeah, I mean. And if you can survive that. Yeah, exactly. And also, I mean, just, you know, I also believe that my addiction cuts me off from my higher power. And however you want to think again of higher power, it can be the world, it can be the connection to others. You know, I lose, I lose those things if I'm drunk or high. And I've been sober long enough that those things are more important to me than easing Mm -hmm. pain. And I can't, part of me can't believe that I can say that. Because sometimes, it's great that you can say yeah, thank you. But it's true. Like I have learned that it's possible to experience pain, and even something that's a little like hopelessness, and still come out on the other side, and also still, again, not be alone. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, this is the experience that makes me find a little bit of fault with Winter's idea of what's happened with Naomi. Mm-hmm. Because it's it's implied, it's sort of rushed, actually, I have to say. Like, the way that this is resolved, it feels a little rushed to me. But Right. It's sort of, it's described as what's happening. In some ways, in terms of the plot, it's also weird to describe because it's not that we, we only, it's Palace basically narrating what he thinks yeah. happened. Yeah, it's a very much telling, not showing. Yeah. Exactly. But what he seems to put together is that Naomi had had a troubled past of some kind, right? right. Had been an addict and gone through some yeah. hard times and then gotten sober and mm-hmm. gotten her life together. But then when Maya comes, you know, she she makes the decision, what the fuck, I might as well get high. Yeah. And there's a couple things. Um, I guess I'll mm-hmm. go with the realistic thing for the, the more obviously problem with realism for me first, which is that if you're a fucking opiate addict and you go back out, that's what mm-hmm. we call it, by the way, like going, like leaving the program, going out, relapsing, mm-hmm. you're going to go big. Yeah. <laughs> There is no way of being, it is very difficult to be even a semi-functioning opiate addict. And if the end of the world was happening, you wouldn't want to be. Right. Like, And yet that's that's how Naomi is portrayed. Yes. Naomi is portrayed in the novel as, oh, it turns out she's a fun, she's a morphine addict, which you wouldn't have known from observing her day-to-day behavior. Right. She, she, does. she doesn't disappear into the bathroom every few hours yes. and then come exactly. out feeling looking a little lightheaded and dopey, yeah. you know? Right. <laughs> like... If someone had been a serious morphine addict or heroin addict or whatever, like they're going to quickly get back up to their old tolerance. Mm-hmm. And also they're going to quickly get to a place where they're using every few hours. Right. right. And, and yeah. even if you can keep it fucking together, it, mm-hmm. your, your using is going to be obvious. So there's that. Yeah. And then there is if she's been sober for any length of time, I like to believe that she would have some of the same realizations that I've had which is that sobriety is too precious a gift Mm -hmm. to throw away just because the world is ending. Like (laughs) (laughs) you want that time you have left to be able to feel what there is to feel, whether that is pain or joy or love or anger, like you want to be able to feel that. So Hmm. it's funny to me that, that winters, you know, talks about how much work he did researching this book. And I don't think he, I doubt he went to an AA or NA meeting. <laughs> I think you might be right. I have to admit, the thing it reminded me of, and this is going to sound weird, but like when I was like a 15-year-old kid, I remember watching Late Night on HBO and there would be like, you know, inevitably some sort of, you know, cheesy uh, movie on where it was 
aimed at my demographic. And I, I still remember there was some movie involving David Naughton and Nancy Allen in which they're in a plane and the plane is going to crash. And David Naughton's response to this is, well, let's have sex now. Yeah. Which to a 15 year old boy makes perfect sense because, you know, yes, that's all we think about. But like the moment you develop any kind of scale of maturity that loses any kind of like validity, because once you actually have some earned knowledge in life, you realize that's not actually the way people would react. And so I think that weirdly that I think works for the way Winters portrays addiction here. You mean he sort of puts it on that juvenile plane. Right. Or as it's it were. a superficial cut. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's what I'm saying. I do want to add that his description of what happens with Zell and mm-hmm. morphine rang more true to me. <laughs> yeah. Which is this idea that um, I'm going to be very logical about my drug use. Um, I'm going to figure <laughs> out exactly what the odds are that I might, something might go wrong. And then when the odds are, you know, even out, you know, then I'll try it. And because I think to some extent, that's how everyone who uses drugs thinks every Hmm. time they use drugs. That's interesting. Certainly if you're using an opiate. And what's realistic also is that Zell realizes, oh, this is not what I thought it was going to be. And in the end, winds up straightening out. And also he winds up um, straightening out with the help of someone else. Using, it's funny, like when she, when I, the one hint I felt like I had that she might be an addict herself was Mm -hmm. when he discovers that, that those calls that that every night at a certain time he calls Naomi, that is actually a thing that you would like something that might be suggested to you in a 12 step program is that same kind of like every night at this time you call me and check in, Hmm. you know? So that's that's a kind of thing that, that Naomi might have seen in a 12-step program, although it's also just like, a, I guess, it's a good way to help out pe- anyone who's struggling, by the way, folks. If you know someone's yeah. struggling, making a date for just a quick phone call, just like for <laughs> not a conversation. And, and I'm, this is sort of serious, like because I've had people do this for me. With kind of a promise that this doesn't have to be a conversation, I just want to know you're okay. Right. Like, is right. a really wonderful thing to do some to do for someone who's really struggling. It can be a text too. But just to have that one little bit of human contact. Interesting. Right. There's one other thing I wanted to talk about in terms of the plot, Anna, which is I know there are two more books and I suspect as I said that I will read them, but I was kind of disappointed in the sort of giant conspiracy hint that we get with Nico, Palace's sister and sort of Palace's old flame. I actually think that this novel functioned best as a mix of an old detective story mixed with the dread of the end of the world. But I do kind of get why you want to sort of imply that maybe it's not the end, particularly if you're going to write two sequels. But (laughs) how did you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, he is clearly an incredibly talented writer and has done a lot of thinking about all of this. And so I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt about how this all wraps up, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. But yeah, it felt like, how do I put this? In some ways, it cheapens some of the other more um, profound messages of the novel, right? Like, right. if, yeah, if yeah. it's not really ending, then yeah, yeah. all this stuff about craft and about like doing things because it's the right thing to do kind of, it kind of falls away. I did want to say one thing, kind of um, an interesting parallel, a perhaps funny parallel is, Dan, I'm taking an improv class right now. And, um, Ah. yeah, my ex-husband accused me of of not having a sense of humor. So, like a good actuary's daughter, I'm going to prove I have a fucking sense of humor, man. (laughs) (laughs) 
you're going to crunch the numbers on this one. Good Go crunch ahead, numbers. Anna. I'm taking, taking improv yeah. class. Mm-hmm. And it is actually really fascinating. Of course, I would like to write about it at some point. Um, but one of the things that we, that's a piece of advice or guideline or whatever is when you're doing a scene, Mm-hmm. It is really a good idea if you don't make the background of the scene, the subtext, the text, meaning if your scene is at a factory and you're sweeping the floors, right? Mm-hmm. Don't talk about sweeping the floors. You right, know? just do it. Because people wouldn't yeah. do that. People yeah. would not be like, hey, isn't it interesting? We're sweeping the floors here. Yep, we sure are sweeping the floors. For some reason, that reminded me of, of the asteroid. Like, <laughs> it, it couldn't stay a constant topic of conversation. That's yeah, no, that's a good point. And he does a good job yes. of that. I mean, it comes up yeah. like okay, it comes up, but yeah, there's no but way it's that's not the only no. thing you can talk about. <laughs> no, that's true. That's a good way. I, I, that's a fair point. It reminds me of that. It's a Chris Rock line from his, uh, from one of his standups. You know, like he's like, they say that life is short, but no, life is long, um, <laughs> and even months can seem like an eternity in that yeah. sense. Dan, Anna, is there IR in this book? Anna, I thought originally there was an infinitesimal chance of there being an IR in this book, but as I kept recalculating, I realized, oh, there is in fact some IR in this book. <laughs> Isn't it, uh, is it an extinction level IR? <laughs> maybe a little bit. Uh, there, there's two levels of IR, I think, one of which is is the sort of specific IR, and then there's the sort of general concept. And I think the general was depicted far better than the, the specifics. So the specific stuff is that we know that Pakistan apparently wants to nuke Maya as it approaches Earth, and the U.S. threatens to nuke Pakistan if they try. I've got to say I'm on Team Pakistan on this one, in the sense that while I acknowledge that on the whole it is much better to try to direct, and we, we've learned this in terms of the way that NASA thinks about these things, it is much better to divert an asteroid or comet from hitting Earth way far away because all you have to do is nudge it a little bit and then it misses the earth whereas the closer it gets the more you actually have to or in sort of armageddon style scenarios where you have to blow things up but still it strikes me that you know maybe a you know a, a slightly greater than zero percent chance of actually successfully destroying the asteroid is better than actually not destroying the asteroid than a 100 percent chance of, of the earth being destroyed so i'm not entirely sure what the U.S. is thinking there. And I think that might be part of the conspiracy plot that we'll find out in the long I hope so, because that also novels. seemed like bullshit to me. Like, yeah, it seemed like total bullshit. Because she, uh, says, she says, well, the reason we would, don't want them to do that is because we don't want a hundred little asteroids. And I'm like- Well, like a yeah, hundred little yeah, asteroids yeah, you do. better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. A hundred little asteroids, much better than one big one. We both watched The Expanse season five. Yeah. We know this is the case. You yeah. Know, so, I yeah. mean, it's going to be, it's still going to be almost extinction. The thing is like, but yeah, ex- The Expanse is, is instructive here. They should watch right. The Expanse, not Deep Impact. I mean. There we go. Yes. All right. And if nothing else, if you if I was the government, I would want to at least project that narrative because you want people to still hold on to a possibility of actually the world continuing, because presumably that would have been a hell of a lot easier to maintain social order. So Kechner's explanation of why this doesn't work doesn't really hold water. And I think I am going to ding Winters for this because that didn't really ring true. And I, I wasn't sure why that was in there. That said, the more general way of thinking about this is that to quote Dr. Strange, we are in the end game now. And that's the part where I think Winters gets things uh, done relatively well. So the liberal theory of international relations posits that cooperation is possible if there are mutual gains from cooperation and the prospect of uh, future interactions. So there's a thing called the shadow of the future. You know you're going to be playing the game again and again and again. Once you know the game has an end, 
like detectives, you engage in what is called backwards induction. You start thinking, well, what will I do in the last round? Well, I'm going to cheat then because it doesn't matter. The world's ended. But the problem is that if you know you don't cooperate in that last round, you keep working backwards and you realize there's no point in cooperating now. That's the way game theorists think about it, um, at least. So you start to suspect others also of not cooperating. And therefore, cooperation breaks down quickly, which is what we see in the novel, both in terms of sort of society, but also in terms of international relations. Canada stops exporting oil to the United States. The U.S. dumps the Strategic Petroleum Reserve on the market. That was something else that was completely unrealistic. The, the claim was, was that the U.S. dumps the SPR on the market and only lasts for a week. The whole point <laughs> of the SPR is that it would last the economy six months. So like that, I don't know why that, that was put in there the way it was. Also, you know, I got to say, specialized agencies making incorrect risk assessments? Well, perish the thought. That would never happen in the real world. Um, that was entirely believable. And I have to admit, post, you know, reading this during the pandemic had a particular cruel turn to it. But I think Winter's got that right. I, did, I wanted to say something about that backwards induction. And um, yeah. is there a name for this? This The way that people, when cooperation breaks down, if you believe that everything's going to get boom? Oh, God. Um I think it's called the chain stork paradox, but I, I won't swear to this, but it is basically this. And even game theorists acknowledge that, that while this works in the math, it doesn't quite work in terms of human behavior, which is if you know you're going to play the game a hundred times, are you going to cooperate when you start off? Most people would say yes, even though mathematically the proof winds up being that no, in all likelihood, you would, you would have to start with defecting. That's the rational strategy. But it's basically the problem of when you know a game is going to end and if the game is set up such that you get rewards from defecting unilaterally rather than mutual cooperation. It winds up causing cooperation to break down well before the last go round. That just makes me think of Trump. <laughs> I, I, that is I mean, his philosophy. Yeah, I it mean, really honestly, because yeah. that, that was yeah. his worldview is that I believe yeah. everyone else is cheating. So yes. why even bother even pretending to play the game? Right. Right. I'll that's, just, and like, that's in that's Fuck exactly you. how he thought about it. And in fact, I think there were actually, you know, there were stories during his presidency of like, it doesn't, you know, he, where he was like, don't you, someone was asking him, don't you worry about your legacy, sir? And his answer was, no, I'm going to be dead. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Which really <laughs> is a terrifying thing because then it reduces all incentive to actually govern well. Uh, I think we know where Trump would be on the bucket list versus lunch bucket. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In fact, yeah. one could argue he's never worked in a long time. Like I was going to say, yes. He's been he's been he's been working on his bucket list for since he was quite like, some time. Yeah. Since he was in his 20s and um, since he hadn't had to work a day and had had to work. Um, anyway, so, speaking of working, Dan. Anna, I have a question. Yes. Did you find a way to point out the evils of capitalism in reading this book? Dan. Yes. The meteor is capitalism. <laughs> I'll just point out it's even going to hit poorer nations first, Dan. It's, there you, it's go. Uh, you know, we have privilege. There, there is, you know, Western privilege, even even when it comes to meteors. More seriously, slightly more seriously, mm -hmm. I did actually have a thought that the meteor is climate change. Hmm. And it did raise a question for me that I would be interested to get your insights on, although we don't have to talk about it here. We'll probably have mm -hmm. many chances, which is this coming generation of leaders have grown up in a world where there is an apocalyptic event on the horizon. Mm -hmm. And I, I just have to think that's going to change the way they view diplomacy. 
that there's going to be shifts in what the norm is and in, you know, I mean, it just, it, 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 it seems inescapable to me. Like, cause I, you know, we're a part of generation where I feel maybe it's, you know, I don't, it hasn't been ever present for me, you know, mm-hmm. climate change, but I think I'm starting to get the like, Oh fuck, you know, like we're doing pretty bad. There's a sense of things that are baked in now in a way yeah. that they didn't used to be. Yeah. Um, and, and that can have, there's some danger in that, in the sense of if you really, I mean, it, unfortunately, it, it does lead to this scenario where everyone acts like Trump does, which yeah. is if you believe that the world is good and truly fucked, what is the point of cooperation? There really is none. It, it, and indeed, I have seen some conservatives make this case of, look, I accept climate change is real. I accept that things are going to get really dark in 50 years. We might as well use the energy while we can, which is a weird way of thinking about it. But I will grant you that if you really do think the game ends 50 years from now, there is sort of a logic to that. I don't think that's the way you should think about it because the game doesn't end. It just continues in a slightly more horrible way. And also there are ways in which you can do things now that would make the 50 year going out thing actually quite tolerable and indeed maybe even pleasant in a way that that i think is unanticipated or underestimated yes and that actually brings up something that the book doesn't talk about explicitly but i got to thinking about which is that there is an argument that people this bucket list thing there is it is a response to capitalism right there is Mm, a point at which making money stops mattering and one could Mm -hmm. argue that's always true like, mm-hmm. you know, that, that, you know, money is a collective delusion and that quitting your job and doing other shit and, and maybe joining some kind of collective is always an option. And uh, spoiler alert, there is more on this in book two, because oh. I did find a p- missing piece in this book to be, you know, what about that response? Like, what about the response of I'm going to quit my job and go be part of something cool? You know, mm-hmm. like go live in a collective community because, hey, Dan, you know, communism does work in the short term. And Fair <laughs> enough. we are in the short term now. Like... We're in the short game now. Yes, exactly. Fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> One of the sadder um, vignettes in the book. I think you'll agree with me, is when one of Palace's neighbors gets rooked by a company promising that they have a secure location. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, and I'm all, glad that Witchers had some of those scams in there. That was that was, you knew that would happen no matter what. And it's handled well. They don't actually explicitly call it out as a scam, even. But it's right. it's an older man, and uh, he also is a very privileged older man, which I thought was interesting. Privileged white guy, mm-hmm. former minor celebrity, former weather man, and mm-hmm. you know he has this brochure that says, "Oh, we we're going to put you inside a mountain, and everything's going to be fine." And he's like, "All right, great." You know, and they come and take all of his stuff. And I actually suspect they're just going to kill him. (laughs) You know, like, why not? If you're, if you're, even if they catch him, so what? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing is, that's always true in all of capitalism exchanges, right? Like, we're promised happiness, we're promised like security, we're, and we give whatever we have to obtain it. Um, And it's always a false promise. Uh, because we, you know, capitalism can't exist if we're not constantly pursuing that little bit of stability that is also undermined by capitalism. Dan. Hmm. I'm not going to push back on that now. Maybe in a later podcast we'll push back. And I know so. it's not a perfect, I mean, like, I, as, as Let I me think put it this way. we've established, <laughs> like, I say this shit and I believe it, but I also, <laughs> and I do believe it. 
But I also understand that the world that I want to live in is, I mean, that's one reason I love genre, I guess. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, that the, the world I want to live in is I'm never going to get a, you know, test case for it. Ex- unless Maybe. I guess, we have I guess the way I would put it I is. Do, it I is- do believe that, that capitalism, for like, um, benefits from, you know, despair. And we buy things to fill a hole inside of us. And you don't have to I don't live know, that no. way. But yeah, but look at it this way. I, I, that underestimates the ways in which cap, there can be an optimistic view of capitalism, I guess would be the way to put it. Capitalism, yes, there is, a, there is a mode of capitalism that feeds on despair. I'm not going to deny that. I am not so naive as to think that does not exist. There is also a brand of capitalism that feeds on dynamism and hope. And in some ways, <laughs> listeners, you cannot see me rolling my eyes. <laughs> you, oh, you know, that is nonetheless accurate. You I know, mean, this- I, I, you know, what I'll say, what I'll give you is that stuff makes me happy sometimes, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> I love my say, iPhone, I- <laughs> like, but does Instagram make me feel bad about myself sometimes? For sure. Absolutely. But I, the weird thing is Instagram is free. Like that's no, the part it's not. Where I don't, it costs your soul, I, Dan. Yes, but that's my point. <laughs> I guess my point is, is that the thing. And also, that you if, actually, if you're getting it for free, you're the product. Remember? Yes, and that I completely agree with. Yes, and that's why I'm not like. I, there, as I said, there are aspects of capitalism that completely fit your description. I'm just trying to say, not all hashtag not all capitalism. <laughs> okay. We should end on that note because, yes, Yes. hashtag not all capitalism. Um, (laughs) Just on another kind of like um, real politique point, um, uh, Winters does have a American soil extremist group come up, which uh, very resonant to to these days that beat up and kill um, immigrants, you know, fleeing the, the site of the first impact. And I just I was uh, thought of our friend Chuck Windig, who Ah. really explores that in detail. In his end of the world novel, The Wanderers. We, the yes. Wanderers. Yes. Right. So if folks want to hear that, um, oh God, I don't know if they can. Dan, is our, our is our sci our sci fi episode still up somewhere? I don't think it is. Type wow. Two. Yeah, all right, that's lost. That's lost because capitalism. You know, there that, we go. Sh- that show wasn't Data profitable. Point. So you win this round, Cox. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Capitalism made our archives. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, oh my god boom boom it's not debris it's just like one big asteroid but exactly. there's some debris falling because this is the part of the podcast where we talk about things we get because this is the part of the podcast where we talk about things we didn't get to talk about before it's the debris field dan what are your things not a, a lot of things because we've talked about a lot of it, but um, I would say, first of all, again, I really enjoyed reading this. Winters has a has a great turn of phrase at least once, uh, you know, every other page or something. I think my favorite line in this novel is, basically, I know nothing, which Palace acknowledges that he's out of his depth, and I appreciated that. There are two small vignettes or sort of homages to other books that I appreciate. He talks about Palace's loving of Ender's Game um, as a teenager, which I liked. But also my favorite is when he goes to the local library and like there's this pyramid of great books that is supposed to demonstrate these are the things you want to read before you die. And someone had slipped on the beach, which is a classic Cold War end of the world novel into that uh, thing. That was a nice little move there. 
And then finally, I, I guess one little question, Benjamin Applebaum was listed in the acknowledgments and I kind of want to know what his role was in, <laughs> in assisting Ben Winters in this novel. I assume, you know, if you talk to economists, maybe you talk to Applebaum as well, but I'm just, I'm legit curious what Applebaum helped him with. Well, you should DM him, Dan. I will DM him. That's a good yes. point. Yeah. Anna, what about you? Yeah, I don't have much. Uh, we talked about a lot. Um, I agree. There's some really lovely writing and mm. Palace is is an amazing character that he is so believable um yeah. and yet not not perfect right like he right. he is Far a little naive yes. um yeah. he does make some bad decisions mm-hmm. um and yet we love him like he's a character that I grew I really care about I bought the second book like immediately basically that's hmm. the way I am with series by the way like oh, God, I like something okay. I just like keep going I will say uh regular listeners know that I'm fascinated by the appearance of smoking in the future uh, this is a <laughs> book in which people smoke a lot and it makes total sense like that's yes. just yep yep Go that's ahead. totally fair yeah no right. I was gonna say in terms of bucket list stuff like I think I would still like you know teach and so forth I would also eat like you wouldn't believe oh yeah you know that's an I interesting would, question. I go would ahead. I would yeah. have the richest foods in the world. I would just gluttony. I would go big uh, on Anna. You know, you say that now. Uh huh. But I did this little experiment when I moved in by myself, where I ate whatever I wanted for a while. Uh huh. And it turns out like that that it's not as great as it sounds. Like. <laughs> Eventually, like I ate nothing but like chicken tenders and pizza. I ate like a five-year-old, you know, like cheesecake and uh, hamburgers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And at some point I was like, you know, I could go for a salad. Like, <laughs> True enough. Fair enough. Maybe that's the way I would go. But like, let me just wait. If I was yeah, going to like sure. on the bucket list things, like I'd be buying the caviar. Yeah. Okay, yeah, like, yeah you know, yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah that's sure. what I'm saying. All yes. Right. Yes. Fair enough. All right, Dan, we've about wrapped up. There is something I want to put on the agenda, but but we could just tease it if you like. Yes, I think we should, yeah. All right, we'll tease it, um, which is listeners. If you're regular listeners, you know Dan and I are not fans of the concept of psychohistory as portrayed in <laughs> Apple TV's adaptation of the Foundation series. Because it's bullshit. Because it's bullshit, because it's not, it's not science. It's not nope. social science, and it's certainly nope. not math. It is so far away from math. And yep. we've gotten some pushback from you all in the Discord and on Twitter. There have been people who have objected to our mocking of this. <laughs> and there is an argument, I think, for the way that Asimov portrays psychohistory. He's a little more scrupulous hmm. about it, although it's also bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And the TV series has tried to have it both ways. It's it fell apart in the season finale, Dan. I think that's safe to say. Can you do? You, what do you think? Like fell apart? Is that a generous way to say it? Like Anna, I don't know what you're talking about. That <laughs> that season finale was spectacular. It was a laugh riot. I mean, <laughs> wait, it was intended to be a comedy, right? Like that, <laughs> it was. It it wasn't done seriously. Because if yeah. it was done seriously, then yeah, it fell apart. Yeah. You and I have both watched the first season of Foundation. I think we agreed that it was not perfect, but it really did have some strong, compelling elements to it. There were aspects of it that are that made it worth watching. We kept watching until the end. I laughed at this episode in a way that you are not supposed to laugh at watching, you know, like serious sci-fi. Yeah. So I think what we should do now, Dan, is um, maybe put a, a, a marker 
on our mm-hmm. hatred of psychohistory. And I think I will let people know that we're going to we're going to do the Asimov Foundation book, mm-hmm. which will hopefully give us a chance to talk about how much we hate psychohistory and, and perhaps fold in <laughs> yes. some commentary on the Apple TV adaptation. And, and yeah, when we start talking about the expanse, it, it will make a nice sort of counterpoint to the things that we were not so crazy about with respect to foundation. So we're <laughs> going to talk about this again, uh, dear listeners, and we're going to, we're going to, we're going to make some fun of things. Yes. Okay. So Dan, this is usually the close of our show and I, and just say until next time and keep the channel open or whatever, but n- next time you and I speak, Dan, we're going to be talking about the expanse. Yeah, boss man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we are. And that's just super exciting because it has. That also means it has been almost a year since we started doing this. It's been so much mm-hmm. fun, and oh, thanks everyone for making it possible for us to do this. You have no idea how much we appreciate it, mm-hmm. and I know. Thank you to Karen. Yes, thank you to Karen as well. Mm-hmm. And until our next episode, when we will be talking about the expanse, Dan. Keep this channel open for more. 